You're listening to Climate Rising, an official podcast of Harvard Business School's Business and Environment Initiative. Before we get into today's episode, let me tell you about a new HBS online course called Business and Climate Change that we've just launched. In this five-week asynchronous online course, you'll learn the tools and tactics companies around the world are using to become more resilient to droughts, floods, wildfires, and storms, and how they're engaging in mitigation to reduce their emissions. This course enables you to leverage those insights to inform your own organization's strategy. Learn more and apply at the HBS online website or at hbs.me slash business and climate change. Now, on to Climate Rising. Beef emissions take a significant part of the emissions that we generate. Then it's chicken, and then it's other commodities. But the main focus is how can we work with our beef suppliers across the region to make sure that they reduce their own greenhouse gas emissions, which at the end will represent a reduction in our scope three emissions. This is Climate Rising, a podcast from Harvard Business School, and I'm your host, Mike Toffel, a professor here at HBS. Today, we're starting a back-to-school series of Climate Rising with a discussion of a case we're introducing into the classroom here at HBS this fall. I'm speaking with Gabrielle Serber, Vice President of Social Impact and Sustainable Development at Arcos Dorados, the largest McDonald's franchise in the world. I'll ask him how Arcos Dorados designs and implements climate solutions across the 20 Latin American and Caribbean countries where they operate and the vast cultural diversity across the region. This conversation builds on an earlier episode where I spoke with Jenny McCulloch, McDonald's Chief Sustainability Officer, about their corporate climate goals. Here's my interview with Gabrielle Serber of Arcos Dorados. Gabrielle, thank you so much for being here today with us on Climate Rising. Thank you, Mike, for having me. It's fantastic to be here with you at uh, HBS and looking forward to the conversation. So in 2022, we interviewed McDonald's Chief Sustainability Officer Jenny McCulloch, and she shared a lot of interesting perspectives from the McDonald's corporate lens. And we're really excited today to talk to you about Arcos Dorados, where the rubber hits the road in Latin America and in the Caribbean where you actually operate the McDonald's franchise in that region of the world. So I wonder if we can begin by just asking you to describe your role at Arcos Dorados and how you got there. My name is Gabriel Server. I am the Vice President of Social Impact and Sustainable Development for Arcos Dorados. And like you said, Arcos Dorados is the largest independent franchisee of the McDonald's brand globally. And we operate in 20 countries and territories in Latin America, from Mexico down to Argentina, including the Caribbean. So we have about 2,300 McDonald's restaurants that we operate, close to 100,000 employees in the company, most of them between 16 and 24 years old. You know, the workforce is very young. It's very important that we talk about these topics, right? Because the young generation is looking at what companies are doing to protect the environment and the community and the people. So we have a very diverse workforce. Almost half the management team began their careers at the restaurants. That was my case 33 years ago. My first job was to peel potatoes in a McDonald's restaurant in Argentina, uh, specifically in Buenos Aires. And at that point in time, there were only seven McDonald's restaurants in Argentina. 
and now the company has 2,300 in 20 countries. I uh, work in the stores with our current CEO, Marcelo Radach. We were, uh, you know, colleagues at the same restaurant. He was the store manager, and I was his assistant manager. So we go back more than three decades, and uh, I think that's part of the culture at Arcos Dorados, right? How two, three, four, five kids went into work one day, peeling potatoes or cleaning restrooms or cooking burgers and ended up leading the company. So it's a it's a beautiful story and uh, my intention is to also make sure that we provide those opportunities to everybody at the company. Right. That's an interesting journey you've had with the company for so long. And I think unless you've really been to the region, I don't think people have an appreciation for just how diverse that region is. They're like, well, it's North America, it's South America, Maybe there's one culture at each. Of course, that's hardly true. It's certainly not true in North America. And boy, it is totally not true in South America. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about the differences in the cultures of the countries in which you operate. Sure. I think the the, uh, differences vary from all kinds of ranges, from currencies to legislation to taste profiles to preferences between beef and chicken, more spicy and less spicy coffee uh, preferences, darker roast or lighter roast. So depending on where you are in the region, uh, you know, there are local specifications that we need to make sure we, we, we take into consideration, right? If, for instance, in Brazil, the most consumed breakfast item is pão de queijo. So we bring pão de queijo to the stores. And we don't sell that pão de queijo anywhere else but in Brazil. So if in Argentina you have media lunas or croissants, where we sell those in our stores. But if in Trinidad Tobago people prefer bone-in chicken, we have the best bone-in chicken in, uh, in the region. And the same with Panama and Costa Rica and Mexico and Uruguay and Chile. So very diverse in terms of flavors, preferences. Like I said, some folks in the northern part of the uh, region prefer more chicken. The southern part is more beef-oriented. And um, I, th- I think it's fantastic naturally diverse company. It's not forced or um, no, we need to be diverse. No, no, we are already diverse from the beginning, right? So it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, that's really interesting. And we'll come back to some of those cultural differences when we talk about menu offerings, because I know that has a big impact, as you were already alluding to for breakfast, but as we think about sort of the climate change issues associated with different menu items. Let's talk about the climate journey that Arcos Dorados is on. I know that the company has thought about environmental issues for a long time, whether it be waste or biodiversity issues. And I think framing it as climate is a more recent phenomenon. And I wonder if you can tell us about that journey. How long has the interest in climate been there? And what's driving the focus on climate? All of the ESG consolidated work began in the company in around 2016, We initially focused more on serving the youth opportunities we had in the region. Young people's unemployment is terrible in our region, and that was a material problem for us to, uh, you know, find a solution. So along the time, this evolved into other different categories. And um, right now, climate change is one of the main topics within our recipe for the future, which is our ESG platform. And it comprises, you know, uh, different different lines of work, like opportunities for young people, climate change, sustainable sourcing, commitment to families, circular economy, and diversity and inclusion. So if you look at one of the um, the most busy areas 
of the Recipe for the Future, of course, is the youth opportunity programs and everything connected to climate change, which incorporates sustainable sourcing and other uh, aspects as well. So we consolidate all of that into one program. And as time went by and the company made certain decisions, well, we was, we started looking at different programs to make sure that we achieve our own targets, uh, which are connected uh, with the McDonald's brands. But we have also our local Arcos Dorados targets that are relevant for us and our company and our communities. So, you know, many, many ingredients coming into the recipe for the future. One of the main ingredients, of course, is all of the, um, all of the programs connected to how we tackle climate change. Great. So let's talk about what are the major ways that Arcos Dorados impacts the climate. And I imagine that's going to be through its restaurant operations. It's also going to be uh, largely through its menu choices and the supply chains that it procures from. Recently, we completed our uh, greenhouse gas emissions inventory in 2021 for full scope one, two, and three. I know companies mainly focus on scope one and two, but the biggest problem is on scope three, which is the supply chain aspect of the emissions and the footprint, right? We developed a program that caters for the sustainable construction of our buildings, whether it's through LED lighting or water recycling, you know, in in the warm weathers of the Caribbean and the northern parts of Latin America. All of our restaurants have water tanks connected to the air conditioning system. So as the air conditioning functions, it generates condensation. We collect that water, and we use that water then for cleaning purposes or for uh, you know watering the plants, or even flushing restrooms. So about 90 million liters of water every year are collected through that mechanism, and then recycling and circular economy and oil recycling that we convert into biodiesel or cardboard recycling that we send back to repurposing or cup recycling or uniform recycling. We also look at uh, renewable energy opportunities. We started in 2020 with 4% of our consumption from our matrix being renewable. 2021, we uh, reached 12%. In 2022, we reached 30%. So you can see a, a nice growth there of renewable energy participation in our metrics. So, you know, we look at those opportunities through purchase powers agreement or through local generation with solar panels in the stores, covering the parking lots of some restaurants. So that's primarily on the restaurants and the buildings. And I think your supply chain is something like 90% of the greenhouse gas emissions. Can you talk about like where do those come from and, and what are you working on about that? Throughout the 6.5 million tons of greenhouse gas emissions emitted, scope 1, 2, and 3 um, last year, 93% are within scope 3, meaning within our value chain outside of the restaurants. 7% is our direct emissions, scope 1 and 2. And if you deep dive on the scope 3 emissions, you will find that beef emissions take a significant part you know, the emissions that we generate. Then it's chicken, and then it's other communities. But the main focus is how can we work with our beef suppliers across the region to make sure that they reduce the, their own greenhouse gas emissions, which at the end will represent a reduction in our scope three emissions. So we're focusing on those key suppliers that typically have science-based targets approved, and we leverage those programs to make sure that they apply those learnings and those uh, technologies into the uh, commodities and products that come to our McDonald's restaurants. 
So what are some examples of ways that your beef suppliers can reduce emissions? Whether it's through adapting the feeding that the cows receive, they are looking at putting on some additives into the feeding that reduce about 13% the methane emissions of uh, the cattle. Also, they're looking at the productivity of the land itself. It's not the same to put one cow in one hectare compared to 10 cows in the same hectare. So the land degradation varies, of course. So we're looking at how productive our farms are or even how you know they move cattle around to make sure that the, uh, the land itself does not degrade altogether. And even looking at what opportunities we have to source beef from enclosed farms, meaning there is no transportation of cattle. The uh, calf is born on the farm and the abattoir is within the farm. So it's a closed system. We avoid you know, emissions uh, for logistics and transporting the, uh, the cattle across the country. So those are four of the main elements being developed by our suppliers. We talk to them on a weekly basis. I was just two weeks ago in Brazil meeting with our beef supplier there and looking at how they are progressing with their own programs that at the end get reflected on our own greenhouse gas emissions inventory, right? Let me take a detour into the question of biodiversity. Of course, the Amazon is in the region that Arcos Dorados operates in. And in the past decades, uh, McDonald's Corporation and the McDonald's system has been in the news about is there a link between cattle and deforestation? Now, I know that a lot of work has gone on in the ensuing time to separate McDonald's procurement from any encroachment into the Amazon. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you manage that issue. It's a very complex issue, uh, Mike, uh, but it's a very hot topic for us, for everybody in the food system. We have the Amazon, like you said, within Brazil, uh, within Colombia, within Ecuador. We have very strict policies as to how we source our beef in regards to what levels of deforestation are allowed or not. So we uh, monitor around 7 million hectares of land by satellite. We use a service of a, a, you know, a artificial intelligence company called AgroTools, and they monitor our uh, beef purchases and the cattle movement across uh, Argentina and Brazil, which are the two countries with the most endangered forestal systems. And like I said, we monitor these 7 million hectares, and we know where the cattle goes and where it comes from, and we know what levels of degradation, if any, of the forests are happening. So we have maps that go back a few years in time, and then we compare them to the current satellite photographs that AgroTool takes. And I get a monthly report as to um, what are the results of that uh, work. And in 2022, we ended up with a 99.5% accomplishment of our deforestation policy. And we take that very seriously uh, as to the fact that when we find any suspicious whatsoever, part of my job is to talk to uh, our supply chain uh, partners, asking to stop purchasing from that particular farm which might be suspicious of any or some deforestation. That's at the highest level of the company. And it's uh, very important for us. Um, We made tough decisions when they had to be made. And I think that's the right thing to do. So um, because there is only one Amazon (laughs) and it's in Brazil 
within Arcos Dorados region. So we got to make sure that uh, we protect that. We talked a moment ago about different ways to reduce the climate impact, in particular of beef. But of course, there's other ways to do it as well. There's, for example, lab-grown beef is a, a new and upcoming technology, still expensive, but perhaps something viable down the road. There's shifting menu items, encouraging folks to rely more on chicken, for example, than on beef, or the movement toward plant-based items. So I wonder if you can talk about how you think about the range that you offer and how you're monitoring these other developments and, and maybe how that varies by country, given the diverse cultures that you were alluding to earlier. In the northern part of the region, we sell more chicken. and the Caribbean, we sell significant amounts of chicken. And then in the southern part of the continent, Argentina, Uruguay, Chile, uh, Brazil, we sell more beef products. And we've been working for the past couple of years to better balance what products we offer to the customers. But two years ago, we introduced a, um, um, a line of chicken sandwiches that has been very successful. And across the region, we were able to move uh, the needle between the participation of the two proteins. And then we also bring in, for instance, uh, short-term menu items like uh, filet of fish or uh, pork uh, rib sandwiches. There is a food strategy team, and we always keep an ESG lens on what's happening on that group. What can we do about packaging? What can we do about protein? What can we do about uh, you know plastic or paper elements? Again, it's uh, it's part of how we operate as a company. And in regards to the alternative um, um, proteins or plant-based products of or lab-grown meat. In the lab-grown meat category, I don't have much to say about that because um, I don't think it's there yet for the volumes that are required by a business like uh, Arcos Dorados or McDonald's globally. And in regards to the plant-based um, proteins, we know that's a category that is growing. Um, McDonald's has certain solutions available for, um, for the markets that are interested in. We are very close to the business research teams that analyze on a quarterly basis the evolution of the customer preferences, right? So, so far, the business case for plant-based alternatives in Latin America is not there yet. It's not a matter of if we're going to do it or not. It's a matter of when is the right timing to, to do that. We want to make sure that when we introduce a plant-based product or a vegetarian product, the product comes into a menu stays in the menu, and it fulfills customers' uh, expectations. We want to make sure that when we go into the game, we do it the right way, and we offer a compelling uh, proposition for our customers and the product. So you have these quarterly meetings understanding consumer research, which I imagine is polling or surveys, mm -hmm. maybe keeping an eye on competitors' offerings. I think you're also engaged with conversation with your suppliers who also supply some of those other outlets. Is that right? The quarterly business reviews and the research happens. Uh, we do that systematically, and we also do an annual ESG survey uh, that covers probably say 80% of our stores, where we talk about specifically that aspect of the business, right? What's happening with the preferences of the customers in terms of plant-based. So the 2022 survey has just been completed. So one thing I, I didn't fully appreciate 
until recently about the scale of a company whose size is like yours at Arcos Dorados is the limitations that actually scale sometimes places. I think a lot of people think, well, scale, large companies, they've got all the power in, in negotiations and all the power in, in making things happen quickly. But as I've dug into this a little bit, it seems to me in some cases that's true, but in other cases, actually scale it makes things slower. Like you may not be willing to offer a sandwich if it doesn't represent some minimal percentage of your sales and given how large your sales are, that's a lot of sandwiches. How many sandwiches would you have to sell of a veggie burger or a, a plant-based meal for it to make sense for Arcostratus to offer it? That's a very good question. Whenever we launch a new product, we are very eager to see the evolution of the units on a daily basis per restaurant. And um, I can say that um, between 30 and 50 units a day per store, would be uh, an acceptable range of uh, units, right? So whenever we polled customers for the plant-based product, we were far, far away from 30, 40, or 50 units a day. And that's why we haven't gone into that offer yet. We know there is demand. We know it's, we know it's growing. We know there is a veto power proposition here for people that on, don't eat um, uh, beef or chicken. And the other piece is the logistics, right? So um, it, it wouldn't make sense for us to move product from one country to the other to waste it. If, if we don't sell it, we're going to have to waste it. And uh, that's something that makes me nervous <laughs> as to the unnecessary food waste, waste right? So that's why we're very cautious. And uh, we don't want to jump into, into taking decisions that we know May be, may be problematic in the future. Right. And the veto power issue, just to sort of unpack that a little bit, I think what you're referring to is a group of folks want to go get a meal. One of them isn't interested in a beef or chicken. They want to have a vegetarian option. And if you don't offer that, then they you don't just lose their one sale of that one burger, but you lose it of the whole group. Right. That's the case. Uh, we've seen that happening most commonly in the younger age brackets, where people get together and go out or order through delivery. Uh, so, you know, um, that's something that's in our radar. Uh, we, we look at it. We know what we need to do. we just uh, taking the, the time to make the right decisions. There's also a lot of movement at Arcostrados toward lower-impact offerings like ice cream and coffee, right? You're developing those businesses in particular, if I remember correctly. Well, coffee is a um, big, big category for us. We have a, a particular structure in Arcos Dorados where we operate with an agile methodology, uh, and those teams are divided in squads, right? So there's a delivery squad, there is a drive-through squad, there is a um, coffee squad, a chicken squad. So the coffee squad has been working very, very deeply in making sure that uh, you know we can improve that business and improve it the right way with um, sustainably sourced coffee and Rainforest Alliance certifications and how we bring that communication to the customer and how we bring that education to the customer as well. What, what does it mean to be uh, Rainforest certified? What is this little frog in my uh, menu board or in the coffee cup that I get? So the squad for the coffee team is looking at all of these uh, elements of how we sell coffee and what needs to happen for us to 
grow that business. So, uh, yeah, um, as a matter of fact, there was a meeting in Costa Rica where all of the uh, coffee squad got together. They went and visited the farm, and they talked to the local farmer and uh, you know about the roasting process and the traceability and the origin of the coffee. So it's, um, it's a serious work, but we do it with, uh, with a lot of happiness. So let's turn the tables, and we've been talking so far about decarbonization and the way to mitigate uh, Arcostrado's impact on the climate. The other side of the story, of course, is how climate change is impacting Arcostrado's, either directly through your stores or indirectly through your supply chain, uh, whether it be coffee, as we've just discussed, or the feed that are used by the animals that you procure. So what are the biggest impacts that you're seeing or anticipating from climate change on the business, and what actions are you starting to take about that? Okay, so if, if we talk about the uh, feed or the um, commodities, for instance, soy, which is chicken feed, um, we take that option very seriously as well, and we make sure that our soy has the uh, correct certificates of origin of RTRS, Roundtable for Responsible Soy. So, uh, you know, we source those uh, commodities, always looking to our suppliers that can uh, account for the traceability and origin of the feed. Um, They're selling our chicken suppliers. We don't buy that uh, soy. Our chicken suppliers buy it, but we request the chicken suppliers comply with what sort of origin and what sort of commodity are, are we asking. I believe the water scarcity element of climate change. It's something that we must uh, even more attention as climate change continues to happen and temperature rising and we see these climate events happening globally and we also connect that to the development of more businesses and more factories being built and more, uh, you know, uh, cities growing, etc. And more buildings that need more water. We have some strategies in place to uh, make sure we do our part for uh, in the solution. We collect, um, you know, rainfall water and condensation water, so we don't have to use fresh water out of the, uh, uh, the tap, right? And um, we, as companies, we need to do uh, a better job in looking at that more in detail. Yeah, I mean, water is a particular issue. You know, when you're thinking about the competition for water between residents and household use and then corporate use and farmers use. There's a very hot political issue and how mm-hmm. you divide those rights. And I'm sure given the, again, the diversity of countries in which you operate, different players have different amounts of power in that conversation. Absolutely. It's not the same, uh, you know, uh, Chile, which is a country that suffers almost continuous drought compared to Argentina or Brazil. When, or the Caribbean, where it rains every day. So it depends on where we are. We need to be more detailed as to what solutions we offer. One of the interesting things I've noticed Arcos Dorados doing recently is they issued a sustainability-linked bond. So can you help us understand what is that instrument and why did you pursue it? Yeah, that's a, a process that we embarked several months ago. It was a learning process for all of us in the company a teamwork within finance, within ESG, within supply chain, you know, within the um, legal department as well. So it was a, a comprehensive effort by a lot of people within the company. And there was a window of opportunity for the company to look for refinancing of uh, some debt. 
So, um, you know, this was, of course, a decision uh, taken at the board director's level, along with the executive chairman. They made, um, they analyzed the different conditions of the financial situation of the company and the market itself. It was um, right at the beginning of the war with Ukraine and right at the, uh, you know, inflation growing problems in the U.S. and the rates spiking, etc. So, you know, we analyzed all of those uh, elements. And the decision was made that it was a good opportunity to go out and refinance some of the uh, debt of the company, but doing through a sustainability-linked bond. So it works as a, a regular bond um, with initial lower interest rates, which is connected then to very strict key performance indicators for greenhouse gas emissions reduction. So we established, you know, our baseline, and we know where we were, and we know what we could and wanted to do. So we went out into the uh, into the market um, with the banks and the, with the second opinion providers, and uh, you know, uh, a whole set of uh, people taking participation in, in the process. And it came the day when the bond was uh, up for offer in the in the in the marketplace, right? So. The company was looking for $350 million, and at the end of uh, the day, the book had between $1.5 and $1.8 billion for taking. We did it with a very clear commitment and targets for greenhouse gas emissions reduction. By 2025, reduce um, 15% scope 1 and 2 absolute emissions, and 12% scope 3 relative emissions. So um, from that moment on, we thought, what would be a good way of bringing everybody on board and this not being only program of finance and ESG, but everybody in the organization? So we, we opted for connecting the executive compensation with the same targets as the sustainability link bond. So for instance, in my compensation and all of the managing directors and all of the you know, eligible people across the company, we have a component of our compensation which is connected to the achievement of the greenhouse gas emissions reduction that we presented at the sustainability link bond offering. So that triggered very quickly a lot of questions uh, from various people that may have not been involved in ESG decision making uh, very often. Managing directors, uh, human resources managers in countries, uh, supply chain managers in countries. What can I do? Wh what's the way of uh, What's the best way of working with my local supplier? What do I need to ask my local supplier to do? Um, you know, so it triggered uh, a lot of discussions within the company, and the key matter for us is to again educate our employees and our and our people here as to what it means and what can they do on a daily basis to make sure the company achieves the targets. Yeah, one interesting commonality between the sustainability link bonds and using those same goals as part of the executive compensation package is it's tapping into the idea of loss aversion, where psychologically people are much more concerned about losing something than they are about gaining something, even if it's the same dollar amount. And so in the sustainably linked bond, you will lose your reduced interest rate 
to the tune of millions of dollars if you don't achieve the target. And similarly, folks in the executive team can lose thousands of dollars if they don't contribute in a meaningful way to the shared goals that you've set for yourselves. Those are both pretty innovative moves. We've heard about the idea of linking executive compensation to sustainability targets for a long time. A lot more talk than action. And sustainability linked bonds is a fairly new instrument as well. At what level of the organization did these decisions, or big decisions, have to get made? I, I imagine, although you favor these, that you didn't just get to snap your fingers and make it so. So who was involved in these types of decisions? I think the most senior person in the company, our executive chairman, he's driving that force through the company, along with the CEO, along with the leadership team, along with the country managers. But um, that's um, one of the things that is particular to our company, Arcos Dorados. Uh, even though we understand uh, policy and framework and, and all of that, uh, those topics, we are m as well into action, right? So if there is a framework for sustainability-linked bonds and there's a framework for um, executive compensation, it may happen that some companies or some people just look at the framework and decide not to do anything. Whereas in our case, we look at the framework, we bring it into the company, we execute it, and uh, you know we make it happen. Of course, that is a personal risk for me. I will have a lot of people chasing me and my team as to what uh, are we going to do uh, from an ESG perspective to make sure we reduce the greenhouse gas emissions, right? So I think it's the, that the most interesting piece is how to connect and bring everybody on board. Great. Super interesting. A question we ask all of our guests is to give our listeners some advice. For those interested in working in the space of business and climate change, what do you advise them? Where are the opportunities of the future? What resources do you find helpful that they might as well? Well, since I've taken this, uh, this role as uh, head of ESG at Arcos Arados, I've learned tremendous amount of uh, things um, I never thought I would learn in my my previous uh, phase of my career running the business for uh, the company in different countries and regions. So when I transitioned over to leading the ESG group at Arcos Dorados, my first decision was to study and learn. What are other people doing? What are other companies doing? What are governments requesting? What's academia developing? And uh, I think... Um, the more and more we, um, the more and more we investigate and we learn, I think it proves the case that education is one key element of how um, how companies and persons need to need to behave. Right? Education, I mean, at all levels, either from uh, the board of directors, uh, education looking at ESG matters, to management teams making decisions for the business, and then to consumers, making their own choices as to where they go and what they do. So my, um, my advice would be to um, learn, understand. There's a lot of uh, resources out there that can, uh, that can help uh, anybody who's interested, you know, be more acquainted. Of course, there are very detailed technical matters, which I think are uh, properly managed by the technical people. They know what they're doing, and uh, we rely on those uh, developments. 
and uh, of course also bring um, bring yourself into the game. Don't look at this as this is somebody else's problem, but it's to begin with your problem, and then what happens in your company. And one of the biggest learnings that I had uh, very quickly was all of this work uh, that we do should not be part of a group of people sitting somewhere completely removed from the day-to-day business of the company. This is something that needs to be within how the company operates, right? The analogy that I always make, you can look at uh, ESG as the cover of your phone. My phone has a cover, and it's protecting me, and I comply, and the phone is covered. Nothing's going to happen. The way we look at it and the way I look at it personally is all of this work must be an app within the phone, right? So it has to be built in the phone and something that you use every day. You configure, you access, you open, you, uh, you know, you utilize every day. Because if we look at it as a cover, we will end up just being compliant with whatever regulations are in place. But if you look at it as a function of the business, then you start see seeing people paying more attention and willing to contribute and wanting to do things and uh, you know connecting financial strategies of the companies with executive compensation, with programs that actually are taking impact on uh, the business itself. Great. Well, it's been a really interesting conversation. Thank you for joining us to share your journey with Arcos Dorados and its efforts to address climate change. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Mike. It's been a pleasure and looking forward to uh, keeping in touch. That was my interview with Gabriel Serber, Vice President of Social Impact and Sustainable Development at Arcos Dorados. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, share with your friends, and don't forget to rate and review. For show notes, head over to climaterising.org or click on the link in the podcast information. You've been listening to Climate Rising. I'm your host, Mike Toffel. Kate Zarenner is our producer, and Craig McDonald is our audio engineer. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Climate Rising. See you then.